All right, Genesis 47, found on page 38 of the Black Pew Bible. Genesis 47, I'll be reading the, uh, the whole chapter, which is 1 through 31. We've been looking, as you know, uh, at the story of Joseph. Tonight, uh, we get a picture of Christ as king. Uh, we've been trying to iterate every week how Joseph, especially of all the characters in the book of Genesis, is a type of Christ. Uh, and that means that he, that not that he is like Jesus, just simply, but it also means that he's like a foreshadowing of Jesus. That God uh, worked through Joseph's life in such a way that people then and now could look at Joseph and see a little bit of what Jesus would be. And this story shows us how Jesus acts as a king. Now that he has been raised from the dead and exalted over all, uh, he blesses his people in several ways. And we want to look at a few of those tonight through this story. Let me begin by reading the passage to you, starting in verse 1. So Joseph went in and told Pharaoh, My father and my brothers with their flocks and herds and all that they possess have come from the land of Canaan. They are now in the land of Goshen. And from among his brothers he took five men and presented them to Pharaoh. Pharaoh said to his brothers, What is your occupation? And they said to Pharaoh, Your servants are shepherds as our fathers were. They said to Pharaoh, We have come to sojourn in the land, for there is no pasture for your servants' flocks. Uh, for in the land of Canaan there the famine is severe. And now please let your servants dwell in the land of Goshen. Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, Your father and your brothers have come to you. The land of Egypt is before you. Settle your father and your brothers in the best of the land. Let them settle in the land of Goshen, and if you know any able men among them, Put them in charge of my livestock. Then Joseph brought in Jacob his father and stood him before Pharaoh. And Jacob blessed Pharaoh. And Pharaoh said to Jacob, How many are the days of the years of your life? And Jacob said to Pharaoh, The days of the years of my sojourning are a hundred and thirty years. Few and evil have been the days of the years of my life. And they have not attained to the days of the years of the life of my fathers in the days of their sojourning. And Jacob blessed Pharaoh and went out from the presence of Pharaoh. Then Joseph settled his father and his brothers and gave them a possession in the land of Egypt, in the best of the land, in the land of Ramses, as Pharaoh had commanded. And Joseph provided his father, his brothers, and all his father's household with food according to the number of their dependents. Now there was no food in all the land, for the famine was very severe, so that the land of Egypt and the land of Canaan languished by reason of the famine. And Joseph gathered up all the money that was found in the land of Egypt and in the land of Canaan in exchange for the grain that they bought. And Joseph brought the money into Pharaoh's house. And when all the money was spent in the land of Egypt and in the land of Canaan, all the Egyptians came to Joseph and said, Give us food. Why should we die before your eyes? For our money is gone. And Joseph answered, Give your livestock, and I will give you food in exchange for your livestock if your money is gone. So they brought their livestock to Joseph. And Joseph gave them food in exchange for the horses, the flocks, the herds, and the donkeys. He supplied them with food in exchange for all their livestock that year. And when that year was ended, they came to him the following year and said to him, we will not hide from my Lord that our money is all spent. 
The herds of livestock are my Lord's. There is nothing left in the sight of my Lord but our bodies and our land. Why should we die before your eyes, both we and our land? Buy us and our land for food, and we with our land will be servants to Pharaoh. And give us seed that we may live and not die, and that the land may not be desolate. So Joseph bought all the land of Egypt for Pharaoh. For all the Egyptians sold their fields because the famine was severe on them. The land became Pharaoh's. As for the people, he made servants of them from one end of Egypt to the other. Only the land of the priests he did not buy, for the priests had a fixed allowance from Pharaoh and lived on the allowance that Pharaoh gave them. Therefore he did not sell their land. Then Joseph said to the people, Behold, I have this day bought you and your land for Pharaoh. Now here is seed for you, and you shall sow the land. And at the harvest you shall give a fifth to Pharaoh, and four fifths shall be your own, as seed for the field, and as food for yourselves and your households, and as food for your little ones. And they said, You have saved our lives. May it please my Lord, we will be servants to Pharaoh. So Joseph made it a statute concerning the land of Egypt, And it stands to this day that Pharaoh should have the fifth. The land of the priests alone did not become Pharaoh's. Thus Israel settled in the land of Egypt, in the land of Goshen. And they gained possessions in it and were fruitful and multiplied greatly. And Joseph lived in the land of Egypt 17 years, or Jacob lived in the land of Egypt 17 years. So the days of Jacob, the years of his life, were 147 years. When the time drew near that Israel must die, he called his son Joseph and said to him, If now I have found favor in your sight, put your hand under my thigh and promise to deal kindly and truly with me. Do not bury me in Egypt, but let me lie with my fathers. Carry me out of Egypt and bury me in their burying place. He answered, I will do as you have said. And he said, Swear to me. And he swore to him. Then Israel bowed himself upon the head of his bed. God's word, amen. The story of Joseph is sort of shaped like a J. Um, He starts high. He's the favored son of his father, right? He has the coat of many colors. He's riding high on life. And then he's sold by his brothers into Egypt, which brings him down to the bottom of that J. Uh, especially he reaches the bottom when he's thrown into prison. Uh, Potiphar throws him there, and he's in prison for a number of years. Uh, But then Pharaoh lifts him out, and slowly but surely he attains the highest place in Egypt. He goes even higher than he had started, and from that exalted position, he feeds Egypt and Canaan, including his brothers and his father who come and basically bow before him. Now, Does that sound familiar to you, that J-shaped life? Jesus, right? Yes, J is for Jesus, and Jesus lived a similar life, right? He he started out very high. He was the Son of God, the, the eternal God, the Son, and yet came into this world, went all the way down to the place of the cross, drinking the cup of God's wrath for his people, but then he was exalted and sat at the right hand of God. And from that exalted position, he feeds the world. He is the bread of life who gives satisfaction to the world and saves sinners, gathering them together into a kingdom for the glory of God. Joseph is a type of Christ. That's what I mean by that. 
Now, this also should sound familiar because Joseph had dreamed this, hadn't he? Or at least he had dreamed part of it. Which part of the J had Joseph dreamed back when he was a teenager? Was it the bottom part? No, that wasn't a part of the dream. Uh, he may not have told it had it been part of the dream. Uh, he dreamed the top part, the, the very apex of this J curve. He dreamed about one day being exalted so high that his very brothers and his very parents would come and bow before him and, and offer him submission and offer him uh, a form of respect and, and you could call it worship as they came and bowed before him. Again, Joseph, dreaming this, indicated that God had already planned it. So that what you have in Joseph's life is a God-planned and God-orchestrated foreshadowing of the Lord Jesus. And that's what I want to look at with you through this story today. Because when Joseph blesses his brothers and blesses Egypt, he shows three things about Jesus' kingship. And this is critical because not all kingship or not all leadership is created equal. In fact, a good way to think about what, what is the benefit of having good leaders is to think about the downside of having bad leaders, which we all know how that goes. Uh, one of my favorite movies to watch just to pass the time are the Back to the Future movies. Anybody else like those? One, two, three, boom. I could watch them all in a row and kill a whole day and, not, and, and be happy about it because those are just fun movies. In the second one, Marty McFly's uh, arch enemy Biff in this sort of alternative universe uh, ends up becoming the mayor of the town, Hill Valley. And you remember what it was like when Biff was the mayor of Hill Valley? It became this garbage can basically it became a, an open burning garbage can because he was a bad person he had bad character and so when he was exalted to high place everything was run down everything became corrupt and that's that's what happens isn't it the character of the leader determines the quality of life of those who are being led well the opposite is also true it's just we get fewer examples of this among human beings. The, a good character in a leader blesses immensely and lifts the quality of life of those under them. Joseph is one such leader, but he's just a faint reflection, just a tiny thimble's worth of sample from the ocean of goodness that is Jesus Christ. And so if you look at your, your bulletin, uh, this story kind of gives us three basic ways that Joseph blesses people. And it also signals how Jesus blesses us. Uh, first of all, he's a king of peace. That's verses 1 to 12. Uh, secondly, he's a king of prosperity. That's verses 13 to 28. And lastly, he is the king of promise. Verses 29 to 31. Let's think about Jesus and Joseph together tonight, shall we? Uh, first of all, uh, he is a king of peace. Verses uh, 1 through 12. Uh, reconciliation had already been made between Joseph and his brothers. They were at peace. But now comes the time to settle the family into a peaceful way of life. And this was significant because as long as the family of, of Jacob, the family of Israel, was not at peace and settled into a peaceful life, what was in jeopardy? 
If they weren't at peace, what was in jeopardy? Their existence. Their existence and God's plan, right? God, remember what he said to Abraham? In your seed, all the families of the earth will be blessed. In other words, God says to Abraham, I'm going to run my eternal plan of salvation through you and through your family. If your family doesn't prosper, if your family is not at peace, my plan can't happen. But I'm going to work, God said to Abraham, to ensure that your family has peace and prosperity and promise so that they could become a blessing to the nations. That's what we see happening there in the first 12 verses. Uh, Jacob brings five of his brothers into Pharaoh as kind of a sample of all of his brothers, introduces them to Pharaoh so that Pharaoh would bless them with a place to set down roots, which is exactly what happens. Pharaoh, who loves Jacob, deep, or Joseph, deeply, and it becomes very clear that he loves him because he offers to his brothers and his father the very best of the land of Egypt. This land called Goshen. It's also called the land of Ramses. Uh, best we can tell, this is the land on the other side of the Nile. So by other side, I mean on the east side of the Nile. That side towards... Uh, towards Canaan in, in the direction of the nation of Israel. They settle there. There's, there's place there in normal circumstances for them to uh, pasture their flocks. Uh, the Nile River created an a oasis of green around it all the way down. And so they had this wonderful spot along the river on the east side where they could pasture their flocks and keep them alive. Now, this wasn't a normal time because it was a famine, and yet they were settled there with the grain that J uh, Joseph had stockpiled so that once the famine ended, they would have an ongoing supply of food for them for generations. In fact, it was 400 years plus that Jacob and his descendants would live in the land of Goshen. And it tells us they would become great, a great nation. Great, I believe, meaning they would become numerous, uh, by the time Moses delivers them out of Egypt, there were probably about 2 million people that descended from those first 70. That's what happens in 400 years. If you do the math, that, that makes a whole lot of sense. 2 million people out of 70. And they would become great because they would be prosperous, which is why a future Pharaoh wanted to enslave them. Because he was afraid that the people of, it, of the Hebrews, as they called them, the people of Jacob's descendants were actually rivaling the Egyptians in the land and may even take over the land eventually. And so instead of allowing them to do that, he enslaves them. So what, what Joseph is here doing with his position of exalted power is he's bringing his brothers and his dad straight to Pharaoh so that they would have a gift from Pharaoh that would settle and establish their family for generations. And in that meeting... A key thing happens in that meeting between Pharaoh and the five brothers and Joseph and Jacob, which you can see there in verses 7 to 12. Jacob, twice it says, blessed Pharaoh. Did you notice that? Verse 7 is the first time. Jacob blessed Pharaoh. And then the second time, verse 10, Jacob blessed Pharaoh. Now I want you to think about that for a minute. Who blesses who? 
What is a blessing? I'm just asking these are rhetorical questions. What is a blessing? Who is qualified to give a blessing? What is the value of receiving a blessing? Now give me some of your answers out loud. Now they're no longer rhetorical. I want to hear what you have to say. What is a blessing? Who is qualified to give one? And what's the benefit of getting it? Usually it is, right? Yeah, yeah. If, if you're lower, you could bless a higher. But it's much more typical for the higher to bless the lower, right? Um, and especially in the ancient world, especially in the ancient Near East, this was the idea. The, the upper hand would bless the lower hand. The blessing was given in words, but the words were more than words. The words were a pledge. The words were a promise. Uh, that this person was going to actually follow up on those words. And so think about it. Jacob blesses Pharaoh. Jacob. A 130-year-old man leaning on the head of his staff comes in and blesses the most powerful man in the world at the time. All because Joseph uses his position to settle his family in peace. What do we learn about Jesus from this? Similarly, Jesus settles us in peace with God so that we, though we may seem weak in the eyes of the world, might nevertheless be a blessing to the world, even sometimes to the highest so-called highest people in the world's eyes. That's what Christians are. Christians have always been, even before Christ in this setting, Christians, believers in God, covenant people, have always been those who have peace with God. And because they have peace with God, they're able to make peace and bring blessing to the lives of other people that no one else can bring. Uh, one of my favorite stories is the Lord of the Rings. Y'all know that. Related to that is The Hobbit. I love that too. In The Hobbit, Bilbo, and yes, his name is Bilbo. He's a hobbit who helps out the, um, the dwarves find their way back home. Um, he's, one, in one scene, Bilbo is questioned by the dwarves because they're, they're very suspicious of this hobbit creature. Why would you help us find our home? What, what's in it for you? And my favorite line in the whole, whole Hobbit is this. When Bilbo says, uh, well, I'm helping you find your home because I have a home. Because I have a home and I love a home and I know what it's like to have a home. It pushes me in compassion to want you to have your home too. I'm settled and secured in my home. I don't have to fight for my home. I already have it. It's there. It's secure. And so I can leave it safely, come and help you find yours, and then return back to mine. That's a Christian. When you have peace at the bottom of your existence, which can only come from having peace with God, you are free enough to go out and help bless and bring peace to others. If at the bottom of your existence is restlessness, which is what you always will have if you don't have peace with God, then you won't be able to be a blessing in this way. You won't be able to help. If you've got to fight for a home, how can you help somebody else fight for theirs? 
Here we see Jacob. In fact, Jacob expresses this in a similar way as Bilbo Baggins when he says to Pharaoh in verse 9, remember Pharaoh asked, how many are the days of the years of your life? And Jacob changes the wording a little bit. Did you notice that in verse 9? He says, the days of the years of my, not life, but sojourn. He changes the word life to sojourning. A sojourner, by the way, is someone who has a home, but it's not where he's at. Jacob is saying, I've got a home beyond this home, and that's why I'm here to bless you. Do you see? And so, if Jesus, the King of Peace, has died on the cross, been raised from the dead, and exalted on high to give all of his people peace with God that can't be shaken then one of the best ways for us to live out our faith every day is to help bring peace and blessing to other people, to help serve other people out of the restfulness, out of the settledness that we have in God. It also means that we sin against grace when we live like we are restless when really we've been given the greatest rest of all time. And we all fall into that, don't we? We fall into restlessness. Now, let me ask you a question. This is where I want you to interact for the first time on an extended basis tonight. Why do you think, even as Christians, we are tempted and sometimes we even live as if we are restless at bottom rather than rested and settled? What's behind that? Fear, yeah. Fear of what, do you think? Fear of things not going the way I want to. Right, yeah. So we put other, thing, other goals sort of in front of the goal of God's goal, right? God has his goal for our lives, and we put our own goals in front, and we're afraid that those goals aren't going to be met, and the fear of that overwhelms the settledness of God's goal being secure. That's a, that's a deep thought, but I think that's exactly what we're doing, right? Because God's goal for your life, if you're a Christian, will happen. Praise the Lord. It's secure. It's settled. You've got a home. You're but a sojourner in this world. There is a king, and he doesn't live in Washington, nor London, nor anywhere else. He's in heaven, and he's your king, and his plan will be fulfilled. So... If we're afraid of our goals not being met, it must be that our goals are different than God's goals. <laughs> it must be we've substituted our goal for God. It must be that we're not like Jacob. It must be that we think of our life as our life rather than our sojourning. My life. What else? That's the ultimate answer. But what, what other possibilities are there? Clint? Discontentment? Yep. Exactly. Which is sort of like the, from the same root, isn't it, as the fear? Because, again, if our goals are God's goals, what do we not have that we need? So why are we discontent again? Yeah, Clint? Yes. Yeah. 
Exactly right. Yeah, these brothers, Jacob, his father, were settled in Egypt with Joseph. The picture here is the Christian is settled not just in a place. I love what, how you said that. I was in a place with a person, with Christ. We have our king. He's with us. He's in our midst. He will one day be in our midst in an even greater way. Therefore, my life is my sojourning. My life on this earth is just my passing through. The king of peace. When you have peace with God, settledness, um, security, assurance becomes the bottom of your heart. If you'll listen to the gospel. When you don't have peace with God, or when you substitute some other goal besides God's, you will have restlessness and unsettledness. Now, let's look at the second thing. Joseph becomes also the the king of prosperity in verses 13 through 28. Um, Joseph shows uh, his ability to provide here, which is the whole reason why he was exalted to this place. He was exalted because there would be a famine. And during that famine, someone had to use wisdom and someone had to use generosity to ensure that people didn't die. And Joseph was that man. Um, Not to go through every little detail of all these verses, but three things happen. Uh, Everybody comes to Joseph first with their money, and Joseph sells them grain. Then they run out of money, and what do they bring next? All their animals, their livestock, various kinds, and they trade grain for livestock. Um, And then they run out of livestock, and then what do they bring? themselves and the very land they live on. And Joseph buys all of that. He uses um, Pharaoh's money and buys all their, their um, uh, land up, and he trades that for grain so that now uh, Pharaoh owns all the land and all the people are servants of Pharaoh, and they give a fifth to him, which is a pretty good tax rate. When you think about it, it's a lot less than the United States of America. This fifth that... Uh, Pharaoh uh, asks for, and four-fifths they get to keep. And Pharaoh, year by year, provides them with grain to plant the, plant the crops so that they can both eat and pay back Pharaoh for the things that they eat. So here you have Joseph engineering, engineering a system of provision and care that would continue on for generations. Now, we don't want to get sidetracked by the politics of this. Is this a smart thing for a government to do, to buy up all the land and uh, provide for people in this way? Clearly, this is a welfare state, to to, uh, put it in our terminology. Is this a smart thing? We want to totally sidestep that question. That's not the main point of this. The main point, however, is that a good king provides for his people. And he provides in a way that is both wise and generous. Somebody tell me, what is the wisdom that Joseph displays here? Wisdom. How is he wise? He planned, yeah, he planned. Provision. Provision. He, he, he systematized the way the provisions would get carried out. He had a fair exchange of goods. And again, we may debate over 
the, the rightness or wrongness of the exchanges that he made, but nevertheless, there were fair exchanges that were done with an even hand. Uh, how do you see the generosity of Joseph in this? Well, you don't have to look very far other than he didn't really have to do this. In fact, there's a whole lot of countries at the time, I'm sure, that would not have done this. There's a whole lot of places that would have taken that stockpile of grain and fed the nobles and financed parties for the king and left the people to starve. Remember Mary Antoinette's famous, let them eat cake? When the people of France were starving and they came and said, you know, Queen Marie, they don't have any bread. And her response was, let them eat cake. Very callous, very cold, right? Very unresponsive to people under her care. Joseph wasn't like this. And he influenced Pharaoh not to be like this. He opened up his coffers, and out came the grain to all the people. You see, a good king makes a happy people. The problem is, we have had very few good kings. Joseph is a faint example of it. Jesus Christ is the perfect example of a good king. Another example would be Solomon. Remember what the Queen of Sheba said when she came and visited Solomon's court and toured his, the land of Israel during Solomon's reign? Remember what she said to him? Solomon, I've heard with the ear how great you are, but now I see it for myself. Then she said, how happy are your servants. How happy are your people. How blessed. How well supplied. And cared for your people are. Well, well, who has a better king than we have? Christian? No one. No one has, a, has it better than we have it. We have the greatest king, full of all wisdom. In him are hid all the wisdom and knowledge of God, the treasures of wisdom. We have a king of infinite generosity. Come unto me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. I am the, I am the bread of life. Come unto me and you'll never be hungry again. You'll never thirst again. This kind of prosperity only comes from being under the reign of King Jesus. Now, it's easy to misunderstand this. Even when I use the word prosperity, there's a danger in it. Uh, there are some preachers who will teach something along these lines. If you come to Jesus and you ask with enough faith for the right amount of money and the job that you want and the car that you want and the lifestyle you want, he'll give it to you. If you have enough faith, just believe and he'll give it. You can turn on TV any night of the week and find a preacher who will tell that to you. This is not that. But I'm, I'm going to say this. The mistake that preacher is making is not that Jesus gives prosperity to his people. That's true. The mistake is, what is prosperity? And how does it come? Right? What is prosperity and how does it come? Now, now you interact with me here. How does the Bible define prosperity differently than we do? Just start listing some stuff. It's important. Seeing God face to face forever and ever and praising Him is prosperity. Ultimate prosperity, right? You can't get any more prosperous than that. 
Good. What else? We become co-heirs Co-heirs with Christ. So, so there's a relational. Both of those speak to a relationship that leads to prosperity. It's not just getting stuff. You know, Jesus is not the uh, great dispenser of gifts. He's not a Coke machine. You put in faith and prayers and God delivers the goodies. It's not the way Jesus works. Prosperity comes from being in a relationship with Christ in which we receive blessings. Good. What else? Hmm? Forgiveness. There's spiritual quality to these, this prosperity that the Bible offers. We're forgiven our sins. We're reconciled to God. We're adopted into God's family. We're made more like Jesus because the Holy Spirit's living inside of us. We are aimed at that final goal of seeing God face to face, like Mark said. What else? Clint. The beatitudes. I mean, yeah, think about the beatitudes. Wow, what, what weird statements the beatitudes are to the world. Do you know what the beatitudes are? Blessed are the poor. Yeah. Blessed are the mourners. Yeah. Blessed are the meek. Yeah. Isn't that crazy? Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. They shall be filled. Yeah. Blessed are the peacemakers. Blessed are the pure in heart. I mean, this is is weird compared to the world's idea of prosperity. Wait a minute, Jesus. You're saying I'm blessed when I think I'm poor and I know that I'm poor? Yep. Remember what Jacob said, the days of the years of my sojourning. He had settled in his heart, it's okay to be poor here because I'm rich somewhere. I'm rich at my home. That's prosperity. The world doesn't get that. And, and so when the world hears passages like this and other places in the Bible where it says, ask and it will be given to you, seek and you'll find. Uh, if you ask anything in my name, you, you will have it. It automatically starts thinking about very selfish things. Kind of like a blank check that we can just fill in whatever we want and God will give it. The Bible presents a holistic view of prosperity that is a reconnection of the human being to God out of which comes spiritual and material blessings. There are material blessings for being a follower of Jesus. But they come out of a relationship to Jesus lived out in a sojourning here, arriving at home there. Now let's pause for a second and think about it. What are the material blessings that do come through being with Jesus? I want you to hear, I mean, sometimes we just only think about the spiritual side, but what are the real material blessings? I mean, in some ways, the TV preacher is not totally wrong. There is a material blessing for being with Jesus. What is that? How, do you, how would you describe it biblically? Rather than Corvettes and jet planes and all the rest of the stuff. Yeah, the Christian family. Christian family. Uh, there's, there's nothing better for your life physically in this world than to have a healthy family. Everybody will tell you that, whether they're a Christian or not. And Jesus has the, the ability to save your family. That's a blessing. 
Uh, people who have good marriages and good families have, you tend to be more successful. That's just true. They tend, to, they tend to make more money. They tend to be happier. They tend, that's a, a, a collateral blessing of being with Jesus. Now, it doesn't always work out that way for every follower of Jesus. And again, there are times God calls us to really be sojourners and to suffer. I'm not saying it's an automatic thing, but there is a blessing that accrues when we hang around Jesus. Uh, there's also physical healing. What does it say in the Bible? When you are sick, call the elders of the church and they will pray for you and the sick will recover. Again, not, not a sort of name it, claim it. Everybody's going to recover. After all, it even says here, there came a time when Jacob must die. And there will come a time when you must die. And I must die. You don't get healed from every disease that you want to get healed from. But there is a real power to believing prayer that comes through being in the community. We could go on and on. The ultimate material blessing is one day your bones are going to be raised. And that, that's true whether you had a good family in this life, whether you made money in this life or not. Whether you could be the poorest person on earth. And one day your bones will be raised in glory. Wow. Jesus does offer material blessing. But it's not the way the TV preacher tells you it is. It comes through relationship with Jesus Christ. It requires patience. And it requires thinking of your life as a sojourner might think, poor in spirit, meek, and mourning, waiting on God. Now let's look at the last thing today. Uh, Joseph and Jesus are a king of promise. Look at verse 29 to 31. Uh, what does Jacob ask Joseph to promise him? Don't let me get buried in Egypt. Bring my body out of Egypt and bury me, where? In the land of my fathers. What is that land? The promised land. Canaan, the place that God had promised to Abraham and to his descendants on oath, on covenant. Jacob understands. However good it is for Joseph to settle his family in the land of Egypt, and however good that will be for a season, it's not forever. God has something more planned. And Jacob believes that so strongly that he makes Joseph swear to him that he won't leave him in Egypt. And he does this whole thing where he has him put his hand under his thigh. I know that's weird to us, but it was a way of making a really solemn promise at that time. And if you think about it, putting your hand under someone's thigh is a very personal thing. Uh, and it does, it does kind of have a sense of weird weight to it. Uh, whatever you say when you put your hand under someone's thigh has it, got a, a weightiness that it might not have if your hand was otherwise placed. You understand how, how this thing works. And so Joseph does it. Welcome back, kids. Joseph puts his hand under uh, Jacob's thigh and he promises, I will not let you die and be buried in Egypt. I will bring your bones up. Because Joseph also believes there is a future hope for the people of God outside of Egypt. There is a future hope. Now think about, this is the last thing I'll say. Jesus is not just a king of peace and of prosperity, he's a king of promise. He has promised us things that we don't yet have. And yet we will one day have because his promises 
are his bond. He has sworn it to us. And so going back a minute to what we said about material prosperity, we believe Jesus has promised us restoration, body and soul. All of it is going to be restored. But in this life, we only experience a little bit of it. We experience a little bit of soul restoration as we become a little bit better than we were. But if we're honest, we don't become all the way better, do we? None of us become perfect. We're still waiting. And then physically speaking, we don't get even a fraction of what Jesus has promised us. We, in fact, we get diminishing returns. That thing starts, you know, that body starts decaying rather than getting better. And so we wait on what Jesus says. Here's what Jesus' um, assurance as a king of oath and promise can bring to us. We can, like Jacob, receive our little bit now and worship God for it while yet still waiting for what we're going to have in the future. The book of Hebrews makes a really big deal out of verse 31. It says, by faith, Jacob, when he was dying, leaned upon his staff or laid upon his bed and worshiped God. That's what it means when it says he bowed. He worshiped God. He would never see the promised land again, but he worshiped God because he knew his bones would be placed back there and his descendants would be settled back there. And so the Christian, having the king that we have, we are thankful for what we receive here in this life, here and now. We worship God for all of it, and yet we know we don't have even half of what he's promised. And yet we still go on worshiping. Because we know our king, when he makes a promise, hand under the thigh, keeps the promise. Uh, we have an oath in blood with Jesus. And if God did not spare his own son, Romans 8, then how in the world would he spare anything else? Think about the logic of that. If God didn't withhold his son for us, then what is he going to withhold? Answer, nothing. And so you may be leaning on your staff and you may not even be able to get out of your bed one day. You can still worship God. Because of King Jesus. They can't take that from you. Amen?